Come for the sword fight, stay for the daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to Barside Chats. I'm Brian the Gleeman. And I'm Matt, the innkeeper. And this is a Wheel of Time podcast from the Dusty Wheel. Welcome back to Barside Chats. I'm your host, Brian the Gleeman. Matt is out today, but never fear. I have a special guest host that you all know and love, Grace, aka Bane and Shia. Grace, Welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be back at the bar side. Fantastic. It's great to see you. Great to have you. Uh, today is going to be an awesome episode of Barside Chats because we have a very special guest. They have a book coming out in just a few days called The Faithless, the second book of their Magic of the Lost series. And it is phenomenal. I have an arc. It's awesome. I got to read it ahead of everybody else. So, haha. But if you are a fan of the White Tower politics from the Wheel of Time, action sequences out of a Bond movie, and a love story to rival the ages, well, you come to the right place. I'm speaking, of course, of author C.L. Clark, whose first name is Sheree, and who is honestly my headcanon for terrain because they're such a badass <laughs> in every way I can think of. Sheree, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. um well first off thank you to be compared to terrain it's pretty excellent but uh it's so awesome to be back and chatting with you brian really excited yeah it's it's, i'm excited i'm excited i uh loved the unbroken Uh, i loved it so much that uh i reached out to you last year and got you on the show to talk about that and your love of the wheel of time which is um, of course something that we talk about a lot here at barside chat and and so when you reached out and offered to send me an advanced reader copy of The Faithless, I was like squealing in my office about like how excited I was. Uh, and then when it got here, I squealed again and then I immediately read it and it was it was fantastic. So I'm really excited for the rest of you to get to read this book. Um, I think it's just if you like The Wheel of Time, if you like fantasy, if you like military fight action sequences, like this is a great series and you will love it. So, um, so Sheree, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell everybody what is the Magic of the Lost series about, um, what is uh, the story about, and for those listening, uh, we're going to try to be no spoilers on The Faithless, so you won't be spoiled, but there will be full spoilers for The Unbroken. So if you haven't read The Unbroken, go read that first, and then come back. Um, so Sheree, you want to tell us a little bit about your series? Yeah, so the Unbroken, well, the whole Magic of the Lost series is basically, like, at its core, it is about Terrain, who is the Imperial conscript um, for the Baladaren Empire, and Luca, who is the Imperial princess um, for the Empire, and how the two of them are locked in this heated battle for the fate of one of Balladair's colonies, one of the Empire's colonies, which happens to be Terrain's home. And what they are politically, who they are politically, how they relate to each other changes over the course of the series. But at its core, it's a battle between these two to figure out who will control what land and who has the right to. Right, right. So the the, yeah. the Balladarians have uh, used to be uh, the the... Uh, you have colonies and terrain is from one of the colonies and there's like revolution, there's fighting, there's like, you know, trying to get freedom mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they're arguing with each other. They're, they're, the whole relationship is this tension between like, you're, you're the princess of my conquering, you know, army, but you're also my mm-hmm. boss because I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm in your army. And it's like this really interesting interchange between the, the really interesting dynamics there. Uh, so that's, that's great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm very, I, I mentioned that uh, you're my headcanon for Terrain um, <laughs> because, uh, well, I just, you're badass and you're, you, you use swords, you train in swords and you're like a, a warrior yourself. So, uh, but what was your inspiration for Terrain uh, and for Luca? What were your inspirations there? Um, you know, I guess kind of in a roundabout way i'm also kind of my headcanon for terrain but only in the sense that when i created her i was looking for like i created her out of a desire to see more characters like me in fiction mm-hmm. um so i wanted just in general 
characters who weren't white at the time it was much harder to find it like when i was imagining this book which was gosh like it was a decade ago over a decade ago at this point when i first had the idea and it was also i wanted like i wanted a queer character a masculine of sinner character specifically one who like a woman who was fighting but also was interested in other women and Again, at the time, that was much harder to find. It was before Gideon. It was before Priory of the Orange Tree. There were, like, the only reference point I really had was, like, Avienda and Kitiara from the Dragonlance Chronicles. And um, both of them end up with guys for, you know, whatever reason. They can do their thing. It's cool. But I also <laughs> wanted something for me. Gotcha. And uh, what about Luca? Was Luca your... Um, oh. <laughs> Uh, ex-girlfriend of yours that inspired that or uh, a crush you had oh. in middle school uh absolutely not um, okay. I, actually, I i didn't really have a good idea for who luca like what luca looked like she was, mm -hmm. she was just she was definitely just a character i created but i it wasn't until like after i'd sold the book and i was doing like last minute edits and stuff it was right before the pandemic I guess springish of 2020, I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It was in theaters. I saw it in the theaters and I saw Adele and Elle and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she became, like I went back and I edited everything. Luca actually used to have brown eyes. And then I, <laughs> I, I saw Adele in that movie and I, I just went through all of the, like my last minute copy edited and changed it. So basically she is the, the headcanon. And if she ever comes back to acting, I would like to send her a little letter and be like, hey, here's my character. If you want to be this character in this movie. Yeah, that's awesome. I know that um, a lot of authors will write their books with like actors in mind as their characters. And it sounds like you just made up a character out of whole cloth and then found somebody who was embodied <laughs> the character on screen already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. So will there be a movie of The Unbroken? Not that I know of. Uh, anytime in the near future, film agents have told me, like, ah, uh, fantasy is a really hard sell at the moment. And I can imagine, especially because they're mostly doing the same things over and over again. Or things that are very, very old and have already, like, very big standing um, communities and stuff. But mostly repeats. So maybe ask me again in, like, 50 years. Okay. Wow. Okay. Put it on the calendar. <laughs> we'll put it on the calendar. The the Faithless comes out on March seventh. It is currently mm -hmm. February twenty sixth. How excited are you for your second book release? Terrified, but also very excited. No, yeah, really excited. Very sneakily, I got surprised. I was at uh, an event Friday. I was doing a little exclusive preview reading at Samantha Shannon's launch, London launch for A Day of Fallen Night which is also an amazing book. I didn't realize this at the time, but the organizers, Waterstones, had brought in The Faithless. So a few people who went to that event have actually already gotten a chance to buy The Faithless. Oh, nice. And when they brought it to me, I was like, oh my God. Because <sighs> I, I, was I wasn't ready. Like, there's so much I have to mentally prepare myself for, for people to actually start reading. And, um, you know, it's been... Like, early reviews have been fairly positive. Thank you, Brian, for, so, for, um, for some of the early kind words. But I also know that a lot of the people who are reading The Faithless right now, like, people who are coming to book two are people who like booked one enough to come back. So, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bias. So, I am nervous for the wider reception as it goes out to, like, a wider public who are, like, maybe picking it up a little bit more um, absently, I guess. Or just because they saw the Luca cover and I can't blame them. Like, yeah, you should it's just pick up a good up cover. <laughs> it's a good cover. I, I did want to ask about the cover. Did you have any say in the covers or do you know the artist? It's Tommy Arnold of Gideon the Ninth fame. And um, and now, I guess, The Unbroken yeah. fame. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> claim, that, uh, claim that fame there. You got it. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been so stoked to work with him. And uh, Lauren Panapinto, who is the art director that I've been working with at Orbit, they are, both of them together, they're brilliant. 
and oh man the thoughts we've been talking about for book three mwah, chef's kiss because i oh haha um <laughs> i can't tell you too much about it probably but if you know michelangelo's la pieta mm -hmm. that should give yes. you a starting point as far as how we worked on the faithless it was that wasn't actually had a bit more back and forth than than the unbroken the unbroken it was like boom tommy arnold is your artist like a month later, boom, here's your sketch. I screamed. And then like another month later, they're like, here's the finished product. And I was like, oh, I screamed again. Uh, and there wasn't really a whole lot that I talked about other than sending the initial, um, this is what she looks like. This is how, like, this is her vibes. And he also, I think Tommy Arnold read uh, an early draft of the book. So he was really able to bring in the different um, aspects of it. And so for the faithless, there was a little bit more back and forth. Um, got a like I sent in my my little brief. Um, got the sketch. Sketch was super sexy. Um, and then we got like the final ish cover, and I was like, okay, so I it was it, it was ish final. And there were a few things I still wanted to tweak. Like actually, for those of you lucky ones who got an arc, you might try and get a hold of a final copy. And see if you can play find the difference. Because there are a few things that got shifted in the um, between the arc and the final. All right. Uh, well, I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool because both of them are excellent covers. But I just wanted a bit of a vibe shift in between the the two of them. And Orbit was really great at accommodating my demanding uh, author diva ness. So I want, to, I want to describe the covers for people listening, because uh, this is an audio format and they can't see anything. Um, but we have uh, the Unbroken. Uh, there's Terrain, who is a uh, black soldier with uh, short hair. She got her arms pushed out into an archway of a Mediterranean, uh, African, North African Mediterranean-looking building um, with dust all around. It's clearly she's dirty. She's sweaty. She's got a sword. She's like really badass looking and uh it says the unbroken by cl clark and at the top it says every empire demands revolution the color palette is very like brown red yellow gold uh, very desert themed uh and it's, it's this really badass cover the cover of the faithless which i think is really excellent at least the arc version has a, a throne with like a round back like very intricate patterns on them and then there's a, a blonde white woman sitting on the throne with a, holding a cane in one arm, hands on the rests. Uh, and she's wearing a blue outfit, like fancy, fancy blue outfit, clearly like queen or princess. So, of course, it's Luca. But I love the face expression on her. She's staring straight at the camera. Uh, and like, uh, I don't know, like it feels like a really powerful and sexy, like, I'm looking at you. And then the, the pose is just so relaxed and the pose is so... I don't know, engaging. I, I find myself like pulling the book off the shelf here and looking at it every once in a while. I just think it's a great cover. It's probably my favorite cover. The color palette's uh, cooler. There's more blues and greens and um, and golds. Um, so those are, the, those are the two covers. I'm really interested to, you know, see the third cover and see how that's different uh, because these are very similar in one way, which is you've got one person kind of looking at the camera and kind of uh, in a powerful pose. So I'm interested to see who the third book is. Uh, but then the color palettes and the vibes are totally different between these two. Like the first one with the unbroken terrain looks exhausted. She's just been through hell. That's what she looks like. And then uh, the vibe on the Faithless is we've got Luca sitting on a throne. She also looks exhausted. But she also looks powerful. <laughs> she looks like... <laughs> Yeah, I just love that Luca is manspreading, like hardcore manspreading yes. on that cover. I've, like, is not I, what you would typically expect for a princess, you know, in a mm -hmm. traditional old school fantasy. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And uh, I was going to call that out. That was, um, <laughs> yes. I, I didn't want to like be obvious about it. But yes, you're right. Manspreading. It's like, yes. it's a power move, you know? Oh, totally. I love it so much. Yeah. I love it so much. And the way she, like, um, you mentioned her arms on the hand rest, how she's just kind of, like, is dangling there. Like, she doesn't mm -hmm. care. She doesn't oh, care. So. I don't know. Like, this captures power and confidence and royalty 
in a way that I've never really seen in an art in art before. And uh, and, and I just really like it because Luca is uh, one of the two main characters, but she's like mm-hmm. one of my favorite characters. I like the struggle she has throughout the, the books about she wants to be powerful. She wants to be clean. She wants to be uh, strong. And how does she get there? And that's the whole story of how she gets there. And the, to see that on the page, it's just like, oh, it's like, it feels very satisfying, right? Yeah, I I really can't say how pleased I am with it. Uh, the tagline also changed on the uh, the final. So the arc right now has um, it says every empire demands revolution. That's just the same one that they pasted over for like, um, so they could see where the text would go when it was finalized. Um, so now it's uh, every queen will take her due, which just really kind of cements that powerful throne position. So. I think so. The 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 and the third one should have both of them. So we'll go one and one and two. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That'll be interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned La Pieta because I was just talking with someone about that on Twitter the other day. Um, can we do mm-hmm. full spoilers for the TV show, Brian? Is that okay for a bit sure. of time? Yep. Okay. So uh, mm-hmm. the in episode eight, um, when Moraine is holding Rand. I feel like mm-hmm. if you took if you look at that image, it definitely has La Pieta vibes. Um, so I'm excited yeah, to yeah. see what the third cover is uh, with two people. Yeah. Yes, and you know who's going to be holding who? who yeah, knows? I know, but <laughs> yeah. Oh well, well, there's only there's only two choices. So well, it could be a new character introduced. You never know. It could. It, it could. could be. But but I have a feeling it's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's <laughs> two possibilities here. Well, Grace, you haven't you haven't met some of the later point of view characters you'll meet in the Faithless. So that's true. Oh, there's going to be additional POVs. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, that's exciting. The Unbroken was was all about revolution. It's all about meeting Terrain, meeting Luca. They they you have that tension of like Luca's here to help, but she's also here to solidify her power so that she can become queen. Terrain is a soldier that works in the Baladarian army and is basically having to fight against her own people, and then the struggle that that uh, takes place and then we move after that at the end of that book the revolution is effectively maybe not over but the the Baladarians are basically say all right we're gonna we're gonna back off and then in the, in the second book we we move on in the future so can you kind of just describe the plot a little bit at a so with the unbroken one of my big challenges actually because i knew i wanted to do it but i a lot of series will draw out the revolution and so the the series itself is about the revolution, and that's totally fair because revolutions take a really long time. But I knew that I wanted to wrap up the revolution in within the series and then look at the aftermath, especially because revolution is really just the beginning of a new kind of problem. You have to figure out how to rule and how to now organize this entire um, system of things that were unified by the colonizer. And now you've taken away that unifying structure. So then what do you do? Like an entire system, you have to either keep it. So you keep the colonizer system in place, which is often not what was originally wanted. You don't just want to put somebody new in that. But it does become a problem because there's a, there's a new vacuum. And so often people will just put somebody new or someone will put themselves there if there's not extensive effort made to counteract to counteract that one of the things one of the books that was really influential in how i thought about the rest of the series from there on was the wretched of the earth by Franz fanon which talks about the psychology and cultural aspects of people who have gone through a revolution and he was a psychologist um, shortly after like in the immediate aftermath of the algerian revolution and during the the North African revolutions period. And so he's had a lot of insight in the ways people as individuals and people as systems will fail um, after they've gotten rid of a colonizer. And so that was something I thought really hard about and tried to incorporate some of these ideas or explore them further in this particular fantasy setting. But as far as also seeing like what what Terrain and Luger are getting up to, one of the things I also really wanted to check out was by the end of The Unbroken, Terrain has like gotten rid of everything she ever wanted, but also gotten everything she ever wanted. She wanted to be in a position of power and she is now, 
she has like she's become part of this council or at least in, in an advisory type position to it um she is in charge of some soldiers which is what she wanted and then eventually she's going to go back to Valadir, where she will also be in a more privileged position than she had ever been before and so it's part of it's the faithless for her in my head is figuring out how she reacts to this new influx of power she has and when she's faced with being back in Baladair in a new position, does she still have the same ideals as she did before? Or is it a case of sliding loyalty to whatever place is going to give her more power? Uh, which is a, it's a similar kind of question that she had before, except now the temptations are different. With Luca, <laughs> uh, so I, I've tweeted about this before, but with Luca, uh, this book is the daddy issues book. So oh, yes. the unbroken is the mommy that. issues. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so in the Unbroken, Terrain is dealing with like her different mother figures from Kantic to to Jagatai to Jasha and even Arnon. And then in The Faithless, we have all of Luca's father figures. And she's really just trying to figure out, based on this legacy of her royal legacy, like her father, grandparents, like everybody who has been a ruler, like what they would have expected from her versus what she wants to bring uh, to the table as a ruler herself. Between the two of them, we will see if if there's any way to reconcile, for each of them to reconcile those parts of themselves alone and also together. And also together. So <laughs> Together. <laughs> together. Well, I was going to ask about the daddy issues, but you already answered that question. So thank you for answering that. <laughs> um, another question I had was, how many times do you think I will cry while reading The Faithless? Because I cried maybe like three times reading The Unbroken. <laughs> okay, well, to answer that question better, maybe you should tell me when you cried in The Unbroken. At least two of them were Jasha Aranen scenes. Um, okay. And okay. then one of them was Torrain towards the end when she was finally like realizing who she was going to fight for and like coming into her own um and being willing to die for what she believed in okay so then yes yes probably (laughs) (laughs) i figured i probably would especially given um one of our new points of views i think the answer is yes okay yeah i'll I'll be prepared (laughs) yeah be prepared uh i i don't cry when i don't cry very often at all i mean i'm not it's not like manly toxicity or whatever but like i just it's just not a thing that i do very much and i was definitely tearing up at the end of the faithless so well you'll you'll see you'll all see when you get there uh it's 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 phenomenal yeah i really can't wait because you said it's like one of the best books you've ever read i think is what you tweeted is it's um i've read a lot of books this year um i'm kind of like on a reading streak right now i've read 18 18 books so far this year the faithless is far and away like number one possibly better than any book I read last year. But a lot of the reason why it's my favorite is because I'm a sucker for like enemies to lovers trope. Like it's my favorite trope of all time. You could write the shittiest book and make it an enemy to lovers thing and I would just eat it up. Um, but in this case, it's not a shitty book. It's fantastic. Um, and, and they're not like en- enemies, enemies and like the fact that they hate each other. But like there's that tension. It's just always... Um, if you've seen Bridgerton season two, um, the way that they like had that tension going till almost the very end of the season, like the the characters that are in love in the first season, they start kissing and having sex in like the second episode. But in season two, it's not until like almost the last episode that they even like get close. And so every episode they're like about to kiss, about to kiss. And you're like, oh, and then they don't do it. And it's just like so frustrating and that's how the, the the unbroken and the faithless felt to me like there's this i'm just like screaming in the book i'm like just just talk to each other just talk to each other you know it's like they did ah. it just didn't work and it just, yeah yeah so, they talked so much yeah so you know the, the 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 relationship there that tension between like these two people who clearly love each other clearly you know have a thing for each other and then the the all of the the daddy issues and the mommy issues that are like keeping them from admitting that is like they come so close oh so often and uh, you know so 
<laughs> yeah, the tension gets like ratcheted up in the Faithless far more than in the, the Unbroken. And in, in the Unbroken, you did make a bunch of Wheel of Time references. Uh, and, and when I <laughs> talked to you last year about this, you were kind of surprised. Like you didn't realize that you had done that. And then Grace um, was texting me last night and said she really loved the Wheel of Time references. Um, I didn't notice any in the Faithless. Was, was that intentional? Did I call you out? <laughs> No, you know, I think probably more, I just had used the references. And so they kind of like, they were out of my system okay. now. But there are other references, um, other textual references. There's a Gideon the Ninth and, uh, um, yeah. and Baru, uh, Baru Cormorant. Yep. Yeah, there's uh, the Masquerade scene. Mm -hmm. That was a very deliberate homage to those two books. There's an SNL skit called uh, The Lesbian Period Drama. Uh, there's <laughs> also a that. reference to that. Okay, good. Well, then uh, keep an eye out. Keep an eye out. I think those are the, the two main deliberate references. And anything subconscious that pops up, if, if anyone sees it, please point it out to me and let me know. Because I, I love to see what has kind of been ticking in my head without my, without my notice and then, like, leaking onto the page. So... I love a good masquerade scene. And so masquerade scene comes up in the Faithless. I was like, yes, I'm so excited. Like I was on a commute, <laughs> was commuting to work. And they, I started that chapter right when I had to get off the train and go into, go into the office. I was very upset. And I spent the rest of the day, like just maybe I can go home <laughs> early. And like, I also love masquerades. Um, but I really enjoyed uh, the experience of reading The Unbroken because I wasn't sure. I, there were there were little things and I was like, oh, well, this feels nice and familiar because it reminds me of Wheel of Time. Um, and then I was thinking more and more, did the author read The Wheel of Time? Maybe. And I wasn't sure until someone tugged their braid. And then I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> they've definitely read in The Wheel of Time and <laughs> they're definitely making these references. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, that was definitely an unconscious one because I didn't even realize that until you just said it. Really? Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of those. There's um, uh, dice rattling a few times. There's the the golden eyes. Um, those were the ones I picked up on, but I'm sure there were others earlier in the books that I'm just not remembering. Yeah, they were all very subtle. Like if most people would would say, "Oh, well, that's not real of time specific." But you know, Grace and I are primed to think about real of time. Um, all the time. I mean, not so. everybody is as crazy of a fan as we are, so I'm sure it's not as noticeable to others. But yeah, it's fun. I mean, I'm I'm happy having these little inside because I I was a huge like I like when I was reading that like I, there's just no way there's absolutely no way that those books did not form a substantial part of my like right. writing mental vocabulary like structurally narratively even characterly like and even just at, a, at a, like a um typography level because i think i'm one of the few authors right now who still likes using italics for text because like i got that from the wheel of time and i was like oh this is perfect i love having the differentiation so i'm not mad at it, it is what it is yeah, that's true. The The character's inner thoughts were in italics. And that, that again, mm -hmm. was like that familiar feeling to me. Um, and I'm sure mm -hmm. if I tried to write a fantasy book, it would be the same thing because it's <laughs> just so um, a part of me now. You mentioned um, The Wretched of the Earth as an inspiration for your work, or at least the thematic elements of The Faithless. Um, are there any other authors or books that you feel were influential in writing this series? Mm, this is definitely going to be one of those probably yes, but I might not have been thinking about them explicitly. There's a comic about um, a Black American brigade that went to fight in World War One or World War Two. I can't remember at the moment, but it was about what happened when they went over and what happened when they came back. And that was another kind of mental reference or touch point um, that I used in thinking about the colonial conscripts. Yeah, and, and obviously history is a, a big part, but The Evil Hours is a book about um, specifically military PTSD. I, well, not, not only, but it, it, a lot of it's um, 
um, chapters are related through um, military PTSD. And um, I took a, a war literature or war in literature slash war literature class that was it, it. We talked about a lot of books, memoirs and novels and other kinds of literature. Like I talked about the war narrative in the fitness industry as one of uh, my kind of projects in that class. So they had a lot of a lot of different influences in, in all the books. But yeah. I feel like I should make a bibliography and put it on my website. Maybe I'll do that. That would be a good idea. I think that would be that would be fascinating. I know that I'm a I write. I'm not a professional writer, but I write for fun. Um, and I know that there's a lot of influences uh, when I write. And I think about like like one of the things that I would love to do is have in my writing is have two characters like Luca and Terrain, like your like yours, like figure out how to reproduce that. And I spend a lot of time as I read both books, like trying to reverse engineer what you're doing. Mm. Um, I would read a scene and I was like, that scene was so well written. How did they do that? You know, and I'll go back and like, look at the scene. I'm like, there's this much dialogue, there's this much description, there's this much action. And I'm like, well, in terms of books that I do that with, um, one of the books I did that with is definitely is um, The Trader Baru Cormorant and the rest of the books in the series. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think Seth Dickinson is an amazing writer, phenomenal, even at the short story level. And I have I have pages of the book. I had to buy the book because I didn't want to do it in my, my nice paperback. So I had to buy the book on ebook so I could highlight it in all the different colors. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, well, we'll highlight all the narrative in yellow, all the dialogue in pink, all the character descriptions in blue. That way I could just track like how Seth was working with the different aspects of narrative. Um, another author I do that with is Joe Abercrombie. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so really like, I really, really just love Joe Abercrombie's character work and how he uses voice in third person narrative. It's really unique, not even just in how close the third person is, but how well he does it. Cause I feel like a lot of people do that, but I don't know if anybody's as good as him. I'm certainly not, but like Abercrombie's first law trilogy, uh, series, or even the, the rest of the books. They're all fantastically done, and each character's point of view is distinctly their own. Um, Robert so, Jordan did it fairly, yeah. very well in The Wheel of Time, um, but other authors, not so much. Like other authors, you kind of, it's a more distant, I like the way you put it, it's a very close uh, third person, because a lot of authors do like a more distant third person, where it's like the same narrator <laughs> telling kind of the story from different points of view, uh, and you don't really <laughs> feel like those points of view are radically different. Well, here's a an, an influence um, that it's it's not really a spoiler, so I won't. But I won't go into too much detail. But there is a certain character's point of view that I had just started reading the last book in Joe Abercrombie's latest trilogy. Can't remember the title of, but it's in the um, a little hatred series, and I started reading that book. And so there's one character who probably has the voiciest character, Brian. You can probably guess. And um, like the voiciest scenes, and that was because I was writing her scenes all all at once as I was reading that book, and so I was like, "Ha, ah, yes!" And because she had so few, and because she was also like the most cranky out of all the other characters, I think it made sense to like really sink into like a, a really strong voice for her. Um, and some of the others are a bit more um, slightly neutral with their own idiosyncrasies, but I don't think anybody's quite as dug in as. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. I think for what, I, for what it's worth, I think each of your characters' point of views were very well done as well. Like Luca and Terrain in particular, two completely different voices and they feel like very real thought processes and people. Um, so I, I think you did a really good job with that. Um, speaking okay. of Joe Abercrombie, uh, the, there's a scene in the first law or not a scene, but in the, um, I think it's the second book of the first law series, but Glockta, the inquisitor goes to one of the cities and has to like investigate who killed one of the other inquisitors or something. Uh, and he goes one by one to all of the people in power and then like sort of threatens them or uh he doesn't really threaten them but he kind of shows up and he's just himself and everybody's threatened by him and 
you, you kind of did something very similar in The Faithless with Luca as she visits all the other people that, in Turin as they visit all the other people that are in power. And I remember reading that and I was like, this isn't, it's not, it's not lifted directly at all, but it has the, it has the same vibe of like, these people are walking into the lion's den, but they're also lions, you know? Uh, and it mm. just felt very, I could feel tension and I could feel, it felt very Abercrombie-esque. So um, I'm glad that you're a big fan of him because I'm a big fan of him too. And I think you pulled off a, an Abercrombie move in The Faithless. So you should be excited about that. Very excited. I think uh, my last big influence, and I don't know if, even if it's something that's going to come across in this series because I've only really started recently reading him, but Guy Gabriel K mm -hmm. is um, phenomenal, very different from the other writers I've mentioned and that he has a very, very distant third person, but also very close because he's, he's, he's mostly omniscient in the sense that he goes through a lot of different point of views, sometimes even in the same scene, and even like the smallest characters for like half a minute. And I, I found that in drafting the third book, I was really interested in seeing everyone's point of view. And so that might come across. I don't know how many of these bonus points of views will actually make it to the final book, though. Uh, maybe I'll like save them and, and put them in a little like blog post or something if uh, they don't let me keep them. But... He just really has a lot of care in the detail and the like having each character feel through a moment that is very slow and patient, but in a good way. Like it means that things hit you really hard. And so the last time I cried was actually just um, like last Friday when I was listening to the Tigana audiobook and I was on the train in public and was just like, it's okay. I'm not. I'm fine. Don't look at me, please. <laughs> um, the dangers of reading in public. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Uh, but it was just so, so good. And it was a twofer because it was like scene one and then scene two. And I thought I had gotten a reprieve after scene one. And then I just got hit in the gut. And like the fact that he could do that with two technically very opposite things, like two, like, completely different emotions even and I was still crying for both of them separately it was just so well done and so I would like to do that if not in this series like maybe in another but I'm still trying to steal lessons like that um that's kind of my goal for this year actually is to spend some time reading and rereading some of these authors I really really admire and just trying to like rip what they do apart so I can just steal the pieces of it um and then put it into my stuff somehow it's a famous quote but it's like good authors create a good artist create and great artists steal or something like that i forget the exact <laughs> quote but it's something something to that effect so you're, you're on your way to greatness uh, i think you're already great but you know if you're, if you're doing that you're, you're great um i guess speaking of like your writing style you, you mentioned that you wrote this one point of view like all at the same time uh, while you were reading this other book, uh, do, how do you write your books? Do you do you do like all the terrain scenes and then all the Lucas scenes and then m merge them together? Do you write in chronological order? All of the above. All of the above. Okay. <laughs> so it really depends, but I think in general, I definitely I'm I'm an outliner at this point because I had like I pants the very first draft of The Unbroken, which was good. It was great. Did what I needed to do. It got me to from the beginning to the end of a novel. And I was able to look back and see. And I learned a lot through the multiple revisions of that, that one of the things I learned was I never wanted to do that again. So <laughs> now I outline also because of like just publishing schedules, I, I don't really have the luxury to mess up for 10 years. So I try to see that if I see the outline, even if it's a rough outline that I know isn't necessarily going to stick, if I can see it, then I can see the, the weak points earlier. Or the person, I'm just like, actually, no, this could be cooler. It basically just gives me an extra buffer for new changes. Just like writing a scene by hand, I have an extra moment of revision because not only do I now have to like write it one time, I have to retype it into the computer. So that's an extra read through, just an extra bonus filter to help. Because otherwise, if I just type it straight in, if I feel like I've run out of time, that scene 
maybe I missed something that could be stronger. So yeah, in general, I do an outline first and then second and then maybe third. <laughs> um, but I know like the hot scenes that I definitely, definitely want. Like where I, I like, r right now the third book, I'm in my head, I call it The Sovereign. I don't know if it's going to stay. But right now I know the, I knew the ending of the The Sovereign when I was kind of planning it out. And I knew that there were a few things I wanted to happen. Ironically enough, those things have changed greatly. And including like the, the scenarios in which they have come to pass. But some of them I wrote because the scene just like popped up. Even if it was like three quarters of the way through the book, I just wrote the scene. And the caveat is that those scenes, when I, by the time I actually chronologically got to them, they might not have been what I needed anymore, but that's fine because I got it out and I was able to cannibalize different pieces or different emotions from it and and move on from there. But in general, after I've gotten the rough outline or like the hot scenes in place, I will write chronologically and because I don't always know whose scene will be what, especially when like, for example, Luca and Terrain are in the same place. I don't know who's got the most at stake yet necessarily until I write the scene. So there are definitely ones that I've written in one person's point of view and then had to write again because it wasn't working. So I wrote it in the other person's point of view. And if I get stuck, then I'll jump around. But I am now really curious that you've asked this question because I'm about to write a book that has two different timelines and I haven't figured out if I'm going to write them straight through each of them or if I'm going to write them as I think they should come up because I know there will be certain beats in each story that will match with the other timeline, but it might be more confusing to my plot brain if I have to break them up that way. All right. Uh, Grace, we got into their heads, so um, <laughs> yes, they'll struggle, they'll struggle with this now. Uh, you're welcome. Um, the, um, I, I noticed in the uh, author acknowledgments that you used something called the Story Engine deck. Oh, yeah, I see yours in the, in the you back. You see mine? There. Uh, I ordered it after I read The Faithless, just so. Oh. It's a uh, deck of endless storytelling prompts by Peter Chikowski. Do you use this? Is this something that you use when you do your, um, <laughs> you got your own, you got your own box there. Um, so actually what I'm about to reveal to you is this is the deck of worlds. Actually, I'm holding up the deck of worlds with a couple bonus boxes of all of my, um, expansion packs. So I have the story engine. It's somewhere in my office on the floor. Oops. The the deck of worlds is the kind of like bonus one that just uh, came out, and I use them both. The deck the deck of worlds is more on the world building side. They're just so cool. <laughs> can you explain to hardest... uh, can yeah. explain to us what this is? For sure. So the story engine side um, is mostly character based, and so it's kind of like I call it a cross between story prompts and tarot cards because. With tarot cards, you know, you get different answers if the card is upside down or if it's in a certain position. And so this is kind of the same with these cards. They have different sides. So you, as the author, game master, whatever, you get the freedom to see what side vibes most with you. So if, um, for example, there's a card that says soldier, it may also say boxer or warmonger or they're usually thematically related but you just get to turn it and see which one works with you and so that's like the character card but you also have a card for what problem is going to drive this story like what does the character want or with the deck of worlds it's based on location and so it might be what problem is this location faced with or what is changing this location in a way that would start a story and then um, with the story engine, you have the next part, which is the complication. So what does the character want? Uh, you can add cards to be the item or other person that the character wants. It's just like so cool. You can structure entire stories, whether it's um, two things that the character is torn between, like they want one thing and they want another thing, or it's a clash of wills. Like there are two characters who want one thing in the middle and you can add their complications as cards. And um, with the deck of worlds, there are like all these different kinds of 
like landscapes or cityscapes or whatever. I <laughs> I was I was actually part of um, the launch for it, and so with the deck of worlds, I wrote a little short short story to go with the the packet, and um, my name is even on the cover of the box. It's pretty awesome. It really unlocks something in my brain. Like I get stuck a lot in writing, as you do. Like especially with a really long book, you got a lot to do and a lot of ideas to come up with. Once you start working in slash for the publishing industry, it can be really hard to maintain the joy aspect that brings so many of us to writing and reading in the first place. And so when I get like that, I go to the deck of worlds or I go to the story engine and I just start pulling cards at random. And they might be for whatever story I'm working on, but they might just be new story seeds that remind me how fun it is to just brainstorm new silly ideas just because. And some of them become short stories. Some of them become future novels. Um, the novel in two timelines that I was talking about is going to be um, my book Warmongers. And that started completely as me delaying revising The Unbroken, <laughs> like in summer of 2020. And I was like, oh, this is actually a cool idea. Let me just jot this down in my notebook. And then the deck of worlds came out and I was like, oh, let me figure out where this could happen. And so this happened over the course of like two years. And then my agent was like, hey, so I kind of like that idea you mentioned out of the blue. Are you going to work on that? Do you want to give me a synopsis and a few chapters? And I was like, all right, sure, 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 sure. And Thanks to the deck of worlds, I have a new book coming out. That's awesome. Uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to using this. I haven't used it yet. I just got it like yesterday, literally. So oh, I've been doing the uh, the exercise of taking character card, an engine card, a conflict card, and a, a aspect card, and kind of like mixing them up just to see what comes up. But I haven't actually mm -hmm. like sat down and written anything yet. Um, but I'm very excited about it. And and thank you for introducing me to that because. Uh, I, I guess I'd seen stuff on the internet about it, but I didn't know that real authors used it. Um, and mm -hmm. so I was like, okay, this is a real thing. I'm going to go check it out. So, Oh, for sure. There is a scene in The Faithless that I, that it was not there. It wasn't as it was, we'll say. And my editor was just like, look, man, this entire sequence, it was one of the ones where Luca and Terrain are going to visit different nobles um, that you mentioned. She's, my editor was like, this isn't working either cut it or we need to do something else. And I was like, okay, 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 okay. So I was just pulling different cards out. And the thing about these cards also is that Peter has gotten really great artists to do the art and they're so evocative. They're so beautiful and just really high quality. So like when I was looking at them, you know, the imagination starts stirring. I'm like, oh, fire, oh, skeletons. Oh, this thing is on a hill. And so, Obviously, I had a framework already, so I wasn't looking for new characters per se, but new aspects, um, like the aspect cards or adjectives for the the um, for the character or place, and that scene just started to click into place in a way that it hadn't before. So it's really great, even for stuff that you've got in progress. This is more of a, a comment than a question, but um, I'm sure you might have some thoughts on it. Um, earlier, you talked about. Uh, representation and wanting to write terrain because you wanted to see more characters like yourself. Um, so I really appreciated um, some of the other ways that you wove representation into the books. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we talked about this yet, but the fact that Luca uses a cane and she's someone who's in chronic pain. And I just, I don't see that often in characters in books, especially younger characters. Um, so that was just really um, nice to see, but also, um, with the queer characters, you know, you had characters that were just using they as the pronoun, and that was just who they were. And there was, it wasn't part of the story. It wasn't a big deal. They, they just existed in that world. And everyone in that world was okay with it. Um, and I think especially for me, one of the scenes that really, um, I think I might have welled up a little bit in this scene, was the scene where, I think his name is Bo Song, the uh, mm -hmm. rich kind of bad guy person, um, <laughs> he um, talks to Luca about, and he's threatening her. It's not a, it's not a good thing at all, but, but, but he's, but he's saying, you know, you need to marry one of my children. And uh, he has a daughter and a son. 
And just he just mentions this without a blink of an eye. That that's and so the just having the bi visibility there meant a lot to me because um, that's how I identify. Um, and just the fact that it was just yeah, you could be with my daughter, you could be with my son, and that's not the main point of the scene. The main point of the scene is that I'm an asshole, you know. So I just I really <laughs> just thank you for that, and I'm sure that you probably continue that in your other books. Um, so just thank you for being an author that does that because um, it's not out there a whole lot. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think I, I get torn sometimes in the way representation is used in like marketing or or sometimes discussed by certain reviewers um, because it can be very tokenizing yeah. to the, the people or the the identities in question, but also to the authors or this this necessity to perform or to confess um, something. It can be very difficult grading. And and sometimes just silly, but I do like like you said. So it's just sometimes it's just really nice to to see mm-hmm. parts of yourself, especially for those of us who we haven't seen very much, um, if at all, especially in um, like mainstream things. Like for for so long, anytime I wanted a lesbian book, I knew I could only find it if I was looking at self-pub or indie books. And so they saved my life. And now it's just really just, you know, gratifying to, to see more marginalized identities in, in mainstream fiction. But for me, it's really just writing honestly or pay, like paying attention. For me, being an author means paying attention um, or being a writer means paying attention. I don't know if being an author and a writer are the same thing. <laughs> it just, it means paying attention to the world around me and seeing the people and I there's there's obviously there are more people in the world that I have not included specifically within my characters like within my active characters but it certainly doesn't mean that I wouldn't and sometimes I think the trap with representation can become for some readers like well how come you didn't write this representation or how come you didn't write this identity and I'm like well I mean, if you want me to just tick things off in a box, then then yeah. it stops feeling like these are genuine characters. They mm-hmm. just become. It's a an interesting space that we're in right now, but um, I really do think it's still kind of important. So, yeah. I'm a cis straight white dude, so I have enormous privilege in the world to see myself in every media, every book, every everything. But I have noticed in the last. 10 years, but most especially in the last five years, this like proliferation of uh, books by people of color, by LGBTQ authors, by just people with radically different worldviews than my own. And for me personally, it has given me a huge like revitalization of my interest in reading because I'm not just reading the same Mm -hmm. stuff over and over. I'm reading Mm -hmm. books by people with a different point of view in the world than I have. And it's in some cases it's very radically different, but in a lot of cases it's the same but different, right? Like it's not uh, mm-hmm. it, to me. It's like these people. I can still relate to these people even if they aren't me, uh, and that must mm-hmm. be how you felt reading the Wheel of Time or any other series written by a straight white man mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. may or may not have a token, you know, marginalized character in there. Um, and, and so it's, I just think it's really great that we're continuing to do this and that the, the industry is, is becoming more diverse and the books that we read are more diverse. Yeah, I think for, for one of the reasons I don't especially go into the distinct um, like pronoun discussion is partly because as, as, as an author, I do find that it can be a very jarring switch. Like in, in the narrative, I don't really like the dialogue interruptions but because at a very technical level uh, like that is exactly how we do it in this world like if we cannot assume visually mm-hmm. we have to ask and i don't i just don't like that dialogue um so no. i i just let it go but to to be technically sure one day i if i were going to to go into that i there would have to be some sort of grammar around it right and like whether it's um a certain way people talk like you know like french as a language we have certain categories of pronoun for different people right like i mean obviously like he she and stuff but like um you have a formal you and an informal you like that kind of 
And again, that's something that you learn by looking at people. You assume, ah, I see you. Either you're someone I don't know or you're someone who's older than me. And so I give you this respectful pronoun. Um, but there are other languages where all third person pronouns are one, like it's one pronoun, like, like uh, Mandarin. It's like there is no he or she. It's just one. And so like it could be something like that, which we see in the, um, the Imperial Raj series by Anne Leckie. Every like she uses one pronoun, only the pronoun is she instead of he, which was the previous default mm. um, for so many old books. And and then we have the the counter to that, which is um, Mike Brooks's latest trilogy, where there is a group of people, like a, a nation that has a very particular grammar of pronouns, and they're not just based on gender. I mean, it is gender, but it's a weird gender. Like it's like a dominant, dominant X gender and dominant Y gender, or submissive X gender, or submissive Y gender. It's, it's not that's not exactly it, but that's kind of how I thought about it in my head as I was reading it. But you have like you, it was like I don't remember if they figured it out based on clothing style or whatever. But your character would then have to understand that language and kind of somehow explain it to the reader, but. I just prefer it when it's done subtly, like they're like, oh, they're wearing the man jacket. So I said, hello, sir. Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> um, like, that was just kind of off the cuff, but like some sort of language like that, that would then just feed into the reader. Mm. I would like to address that someday, but it's just all in the world building. I know that, you know, Charlie Jane Anders and Anna Lee Newitz. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the, the reason I know that is because the first time I heard your voice was on their podcast. <laughs> and uh, but Charlie Jane has a series out. Uh, the first book is called Victory is Greater Than Death. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a, a YA like coming of age uh, girl who believes she's uh, an alien or a space person. And then it, that turns true. And she winds up in space with a bunch of aliens on a ship. And one of the things that happens is once she goes on the ship, everybody starts saying, like, I'm Brian, he, him, uh, or I'm Grace, you know, she, her. Uh, it's like an automatic thing. And the main character says, mm-hmm. wait, what's up with this? And they said, oh, well, we all have different pronouns. So our universal translator automatically translates your pronouns for you. And so every time you're introduced mm-hmm. to somebody, you get their pronouns immediately. Mm-hmm. And it becomes it becomes sort of, a world building point, not necessarily like a plot point, but it's like a very brief, like one page explanation of why every character is giving you their pronouns throughout the, mm. the series. I mm. thought it was a really clever, I love Charlie Jane and everything that she writes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, approach to it. Uh, I have a fun question mm-hmm. that I thought might mm-hmm. maybe draw in folks who've read The Wheel of Time but haven't read your books yet. Um, if you were to cast Luca and Torain in the Wheel of Time TV series, who would you cast them as? Um, you mean like what Wheel of Time character they would yeah. be? Yeah, who would they play in The Wheel of Time? Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. I think that I think Terrain would definitely be like, I want to be an Aiel or I want to be a warder. You get one choice. Don't mess it up. And I don't know if, like, I don't know if there would be like a particular warder she would want to be. I think that Luca would think that she was like Elaine. Or she would aspire to be a swan type. But then she would realize that she, um, let's just say if she were like like pre-current age, she could end up being a landfear if she wasn't careful. Like oh. that kind of, like, she's got, she's got a little bit too much ambition to be wholly on the side of the light if she had power. So surprise, surprise for book three. We'll see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But you you see hints of that in the Faithless. She has to make some really tough decisions that make you wonder about her lightness. Uh, that's a good question, Grace. Did you uh, have you rewatched season t- uh, one of The Wheel of Time since it came out? I've rewatched certain episodes. Certain episodes. <laughs> Which one was your favorite episode? Hmm. hmm I wonder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
Oh, actually, I have a really nerdy point because I was going to say my favorite episode, obviously, is the Moraine Swan one. But um, Sophie Okinedo is doing a play here in London. And I like it just opened and I'm trying to figure out how to get tickets just so I could just go and stare at her. She's incredible. Like, I don't even care what she's saying. I mean, I do, but I don't. Um, I should connect you with some of our Wheel of Time friends because there's two at least that I know of that are planning to go just so they can see her in that show. So they'll be around. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Uh, so I'm, I want to I'm going to go see her. But so I like that episode with Swan and Moraine. But I also I think. One of the the sleeper moments for me was like the the what Tarman Gap um, yep. battle. Yep. Like I don't know if I expected that to impact me quite like it did. I really liked that that sequence. Um, but I'm really I'm still really excited to see how they shape the season two, like the other books that we get drawn in and stuff. So what did you like about that scene? I'm curious because a lot of people have identified that scene as the one that they think is the weakest in the series. So um, could you talk about like why it impacted you so much? I think it was like seeing the girls kind of wrap around the the one power in, in one sense, but also maybe it was because I was I had to write battle scenes at the time. And so I was just really focused on the the blocking of it but also like when we get Pat and Fane sneaking in again like just all like it's it's when the fact that it was a big scene right like it's a big battle scene major plot point as a writer but at the same time all of these small things are happening and it was how they were able to frame all these these concurrent things like they're holding the battle the battle is to hold off and buy time but also these like girls are discovering their power and going beyond it like their own life or death struggle we've got these newer characters who admittedly i'm like technically i know who you are but i don't really know who you are so like um, emotionally maybe it was that part like those new characters didn't have enough time to resonate with me but you know we have land grappling with being in this this kind of home position again We've got Pat and Fane sneaking in, and then we have the entire like um, random rain happening. So it's it's it was a really good guide for me at how to try and do multiple things at once. Mm. Like maybe I wouldn't. Maybe when I go back, if I'm not in that same headspace, it wouldn't be as impactful to me. And I don't know if I took the right lessons from it when I was <laughs> writing. Um, we'll see. But yeah, I I think I've been craving another like craving fantasy TV show a bit more. I just watched Willow and so I really just kind of want to like watch these things over and over again cuz nothing else is coming that really grabs me. Mm. Um I just finished Willow the other night as well. Uh I thought it was fantastic. I loved it so much. I do want to ask you before we leave about your your novelette that's up for a Nebula nomination. Would you mm. like to talk a little bit about that? I haven't read it. So it's a it's a shortish story. It's about a sailor who is definitely not a pirate. She will tell you, um, <laughs> and she her ship crashes or runs aground a bit because a lighthouse goes out. The lighthouse keeper finds her and drags her and nurses her back to health. And as she's kind of stuck there for a while until the season changes until because it's winter and there are going to be more boats coming through. They're forced to stick around together, get to know each other. But there's the mystery of this lighthouse that keeps going out. And uh, the not a pirate wants <laughs> to figure out what the lighthouse keeper's secret is. And the lighthouse keeper is like, no, nah, I'm not going to tell you what happens after that. When um, like what kind of trust they have, what kind of trust is broken. It was, <laughs> I don't know if I've actually ever talked about this, um, but this is very exclusive for you guys, probably. Yes. Um, awesome. <laughs> my partner really likes lighthouses, and she's she's another author, um, writes sci-fi and fantasy as well, mostly short stories. And um, she was like, you know, you can be a pirate, and I will be this lighthouse keeper and um except like i want to be a lighthouse ghost or a lighthouse zombie or something and i was like 
okay, I guess, fine. And um, I don't really like zombies. I'm like really, really scared of everything. So I don't do zombies. And um, this was like, you know, many years ago. And then I was listening to Headspace Sleepcasts, which are um, really great for if you're like me and you, you have a hard time getting to sleep. And um, they just basically tell you a little narrative, like very peaceful, like you're walking through a lighthouse and you can hear the waves crashing outside and they have wave crashing sound effects, whatever. And so I would listen to that and I was just like, oh, remember that lighthouse zombie ghost story that you were telling me we should we should write or whatever? And um, yeah, so I decided, okay, now is the time. We're going to write this this, this uh, supernatural lighthouse keeper and this pirate who is not a pirate and uh, see where that goes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll have to check it out. It's uh, it's nebulate. It's nominated for a Nebula Award. It's it's not yet. Not yet. It's not yet. Okay. But it is eligible if anybody hears this. Um, eligible. And you can. I'm not a I'm not a member, but uh, <laughs> I will tweet at all the members I know and get them to nominate it. We'll start a tweet campaign. I'll start a tweet campaign. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> but even if you can't nominate it just read it if you want a little sapphic non-pirate and lighthouse keeper um, action nice absolutely what's the name of it uh your eyes my beacon being a series of misadventures and how i found my way home i mean i love pirates so yeah or not pirates i guess not uh, pirates. <laughs> just not a pirate not a pirate definitely not a pirate <laughs> well it also has a companion story um, which is called Forgive Me My Love for the Ice and the Sea, which came out several years ago, but in my head, they're in the same world. Same universe. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, mm-hmm. I need to read both then. Got the C.L. Clark cinematic universe going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we can leave it there. And let's just, do you have any final words, anything, that, any last minute pitches you want uh, our listeners to uh, take into account before The Faithless comes out? You know, um, I don't know. I feel like I could say something like uh, come for the sword fight, stay for the daddy issues. But I just, <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, if you guys, if you guys, you know, read it and want to tweet at me, that's totally cool. You can still find me probably on Twitter at C underscore L underscore C-L-A-R-K. Your book comes out on March 7th, 2023. That's a little over like eight days from now. I'm super excited to let everybody else read this book. I'm going to have to go get the book so I can compare the covers. Um, (laughs) Really excited about that. And I can't wait for you to read it, Grace. I think it'll be... I can't wait to read it either. Right up your alley. Um, I think so too. Thank you, Sheree, so much for joining. We really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy doing sword stuff and writing (laughs) and you know having adventures and working out and being awesome and so we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come talk with us really appreciate you giving me the space to just hang out and talk to other you know like-minded readers shall we say yeah um it's really really just a pleasure it's a pleasure to have you and Grace, it's great to have you on. Thanks for thanks for coming. Of course, anytime. I love joining you on these things. Yes, absolutely. All right, that's it for now. If you are a fan of the podcast, please leave us a review at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time at the bar side. Barside Chats is a Dusty Wheel production, jointly hosted by Brian the Gleeman and Matt the Innkeeper. If you would like to support this podcast, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or you may email us at podcast at